Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. I'm really enthusiastic about the show we've got for you today because I've wanted to talk about this organization for quite a long time. Now, those of you uh, who know me at all know that I work full-time for a pro-life organization, and in my capacity working for uh, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, I've had the opportunity to do a lot of traveling and collaboration with other pro-life groups around the world. Because it's very important uh, when you're working on pro-life strategy to find out what other groups are doing in different countries, to, to see what they've done that's worked, to share what you've done that's worked. And a couple of years ago, in 2019, after a speaking tour in the Netherlands uh, at different college campuses and at high schools on abortion and pro-life apologetics, I was meeting with uh, different pro-life activists to discuss what they were doing in their country. So I had the opportunity, for example, to go to Switzerland, uh, where I met with the head of the pro-life movement there and discussed their efforts, especially against euthanasia. And then I, I met with Manuel Steiner of Pro-Life Europe. It was a very fresh organization in 2019 uh, on a university campus in Salzburg. And what they're doing at Pro-Life Europe is really, really fascinating, is that essentially they're, they're a group of young people that are starting a network of pro-life campus clubs right across the continent. They've just done a staggering amount of work in just a couple of years. Uh, they're, in, they're in eight or nine countries already. They've got up to 30 groups. And I've had the privilege of, of getting to speak to one of their conferences uh, in Vienna, their impact conferences, where students from all over Europe were there to get trained. Uh, I got to speak briefly at the, at the March for Life in Austria uh, after having been invited there by Pro-Life Europe. And uh, we actually had some of the leaders of Pro-Life Europe, including Manuela, come uh, with us on one of our campus projects to sort of see how we did things. And uh, we've been in discussion ever since, seeing what Pro-Life Europe has been doing, sharing uh, with them what we've been doing. And I really could not, I can't emphasize how impressed I am with what they're doing and what they're attempting. And so I wanted to share uh, their work with, with all of my listeners, because I think that what they're doing is also really, really encouraging. And, and a lot of you will know quite a bit about the Canadian pro-life movement. You'll know quite a bit about the American pro-life movement. But I find a lot of people aren't very familiar with what the European pro-life movement is doing in different countries. And it's interesting because... Wherever the culture of death rears its head, there is a backlash. Wherever abortion takes root, a pro-life movement springs up in response. And I always find that exploring uh, the pro-life movement in different countries is incredibly encouraging because you realize that wherever you go, you're going to find people who are fighting to defend life, who are fighting to defend babies. And it's just, it's a much happier and less cynical way to look at the world than only focusing on all of the groups who are attempting to destroy civilization from the ground up. And so, I will present to you, without further introduction, my conversation uh, with Austrian pro-life activist and head of Pro-Life Europe, Manuela Steiner. I hope you enjoy and are encouraged by this conversation, as I was. So my first question is, how did you get involved in the pro-life movement? Because anybody who works in the full-time pro-life movement, I think, attracts a lot of curiosity because it's not most people's first career choice. You could say that, yeah. <laughs> um, so my approach, I think, started very personal because I myself was an un 
not maybe unwanted but unplanned child. I was first uh, the third child for my parents. They were done after two, which is why there is a huge gap of eight years between my older brother and me. And my mom was in her late 30s then. And when she was at her doctor's appointment, he actually um, suggested an abortion uh, beginning of the 1990s because, well, yeah, she had options then. <laughs> and my, I grew up with my mom telling that story of how horrible she felt when he suggested this. And I'm very thankful to my mother because she's a strong woman and she yelled at him with what opinions or what what options he was mentioning and she's pregnant she's having this child end of discussion and i i love her for this there was always she, she told the story very often and she always said that she was so thankful um that she had this this strength back then and um during uh, my first year of university i came in contact with a few active pro-lifers here in Austria from uh, Youth for Life. And that was my first real contact with people actively doing something against abortion. And it took me then a few more years actually from supporting them and telling them how awesome their work is to really, to really feeling that I have to do my part as well. And um, it was actually reading Abby Johnson's book, Unplanned, oh. which gave me the final boost of knowing if this is what really happens, you, you're you done sitting at home and saying it's terrible. You have to do your part. You, mm. you have to do something. And it seems that I am an all-in girl. <laughs> <laughs> and within uh, a few months, I became a volunteer. I started a group here in my hometown and started working part-time. And now I've been working full-time for the pro-life movement for two and a half years by now. Yeah. So give us a little bit of background. I know that when I met you and I think I met you in Salzburg in 2019, right? Which seems, I think, 10 years ago now. Um, <laughs> with everything that's happened in between, it's very difficult for me to remember dates, even a couple of years ago. Uh, and so I met, I met you in Salzburg on the campus there and you were passing out leaflets. Pro-Life Europe had started about eight months before that. And just to give the listeners a little bit of background uh, to discuss like the way that Pro-Life Europe developed. Originally, there was, there was Austria Youth for Life and Pro-Life Europe was founded in Austria and came out of an Austrian organization. So maybe give our listeners an idea of like, when was abortion legalized in Austria when did the pro-life movement in Austria start to develop? And then how did pro-life Europe come out of that? Because there's a very interesting chronology there, especially for those who will be familiar that in Canada, abortion was decriminalized in 1969, in the United States, 1973. Um, but most people aren't really familiar with the chronological trajectory in Europe. Yeah, so um, Austria followed a few years after the U.S. Um, officially, um, abortion is still illegal in Austria, but it's mm. unpunished within a few conditions, which basically makes it legal for everybody. Um, the law change came in 1995 and started to work in uh, uh, 75, sorry, and is uh, started in uh, Jan January 1st, 1976. And currently abortion is possible up until the 12th week 
um, where we only need a counseling session beforehand. We don't have extra counseling organizations. So the abortionist can be the one that is doing the counseling. Also, there is no waiting period in between. So basically in Austria, the woman goes to the abortionist, says she's pregnant, she wants an abortion and he hands her the pill or if he has time, um, does the operation. And also we have abortion up until birth. If there might be a defect uh, from with the baby, so some sort of disability, or the mother's health is endangered, or the mother was under 14 when she conceived. So that's that's the possibilities for abortion until birth in Austria. And we also are one of the few European countries without an official abortion statistic. So we have only estimates, but the estimates also from the abortionists in Austria um, are around 35,000 abortions each year, which is one of four pregnant women, a little bit right. than one of more, a little bit more than one of four women. And so the pro-life movement actually started immediately um, because the change in the law was made when we had a government, which was one party only, the Socialist Party. And already when they, when they um, so made the change in the law, the Catholic Church started a major petition, which is the which was the biggest one in all of our uh, history of the uh, after the Second World War. Almost a million people signed oh, wow. to to stop abortion being legalized in in Austria, but the single socialist party they received the signatures and said, "Well, we're going to do it anyway." And this is basically then when the when the pro-life movement in Austria started. Um, the initiators of this petition were promised that there would be further changes in the law to expand the help programs for pregnant women to have more counseling organizations. It's a long time later and we are still asking for those additional help resources they mm. never came and for the youth movement uh, youth for life austria was founded a little more than 10 years later it was i think 1989 when from a group of young people they they watched the the silent scream i think it's in english yes and after that they they started the youth for life and so that was going on for over 30 years with different approaches, starting with silent marches in our major cities, then um, starting with, with talks in schools. Then we started with a summer program where we were hiking two weeks from city A to city B, handing out flyers, giving talks, doing outreaches, everything just to reach people and to 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 talk about abortion this is basically our main approach was is to break the break the silence around the topic and of course to reach to reach young people and um in the last few years we have yeah we have always rethought our 
approach what is what is happening around the world what else could we do what is more effective and one of our team members got in contact with a young girl from the US who was uh, on a month uh, on a semester trip to Germany um, and she was a member of Students for Life of America and so we came in contact with them and saw that they had great impact in the US doing one thing we hadn't done before, and that was getting active at universities. Mm. It's very difficult in, in Europe because the culture in universities is totally different than the US. Our campuses are, yeah, there is no comparison. There are no clubs here, no initiatives, nothing, or hardly anything. We don't have sports clubs or not even not even bands or anything at our university campuses. People very often live in different cities and travel to university in the morning to get to the lectures and then they go home and study again. So it's very difficult. But on the other hand, we know that being at the universities is the ground to reach young people where they are centered and also reaching people at university means reaching the leaders of tomorrow. And so despite the fact that we knew it's going to be a lot of work and a huge change of approach for us, we realized we have to get active at universities. We also realized that we have to stop just working in Austria because what's happening here is, is happening everywhere around Europe. And very many countries in Europe were lacking a pro-life youth movement in general. Um, for example, I know in the Netherlands, people were reaching out to pro-life organizations what to do as a, as a young adult. And, and then we knew, yeah, we have some resources, we have lots of ideas, and we want to do something, and we want to do it at universities in all over Europe. And in 2018, we then received the awesome news that our contact from the U.S., Bethany Jensen, she agreed to move to Austria and join us in this project of building this movement for all over Europe. And that's when we started to really intensely work on our, on our idea in 2019. In March, um, so two years ago, we officially founded Pro-Life Europe. It's interesting the, the parallels in, in what you're saying to other countries because the the, the Dutch Pro-Life movement was originally founded by a man named by a man named Bert Dornbos, and he founded it also after watching the silent scream. And then in Canada, after abortion was just decriminalized, pro-lifers submitted the largest petition ever received by our parliament, and it was just over a million signatures. There's actually a lot of a lot of um, commonalities in the initial backlash in different nations by pro-life people to abortion being legalized. Now, it's interesting because I've, I've spent a lot of time with European pro-lifers just because of, of my Dutch background. So um, by the time I came into contact with pro-life, well, I came into contact with pro-life Europe because I'd just done a speaking tour in the Netherlands on abortion. Um, and what's always interested me is that although there's a lot of inspiration from um, the American movement to different groups around the world, 
Um, what I think American activists sometimes don't understand is, is how different every single European country is. They're all very unique. They have their own culture and background. It's not homogenous. Um, so both you and I have, have done activism on American campuses before, so we actually can probably kind of compare what the experience is like and how, how different those experiences are like. And I remember um, the first time I did activism every day for weeks in a European country was in Ireland leading up to the referendum. And I realized that like Ireland is, is so, so much different than the U.S., but Ireland is also so, so much different than the Netherlands. Like what works in yes. one place won't work somewhere else. Now, I've never done I've come to Austria, of course, I joined I joined all of you for a conference in the March for Life, but I've never done activism like door to door activism in Austria. But I would presume that would even be different again uh, than Ireland or the Netherlands. So what has it been like trying to create a continent wide organization that sort of has to develop almost a unique approach to all of these all of these different countries because by definition a one size fits all approach won't work and anybody who knows anything about european history and culture should be able to just figure that out by thinking about it yeah it's it's challenging all right you can say that um it starts with the little things because of course we have only a few countries with the same language and even now Austria and Germany both speak German, but even there we have differences and different meanings for, for some things. And, and so this goes on and on and on. It's, it's good that basically we're speaking English within our team most of the time because it's nobody's mother language. <laughs> so there is some fairness for everybody. And then, yeah, you have to just go step by step and really think about basic concepts everybody can real can do and realistically put into action and we have been working with a system of small groups at universities and we're trying to give them as much freedom as possible and also um we are always for one of the first steps in starting in a new country is finding volunteers or a full-time regional director for this country. So we have somebody from this country knowing the culture, knowing the people, speaking the language. But it's it's really it's really tough sometimes and very much in the details because as you can see, I'm wearing my orange Pro-Life Europe hoodie. And Everybody was fine with this color until we went into Holland and everybody said, yeah, no, we need white t-shirts. We cannot wear this because in Holland, orange has a yeah. different meaning than Germany or Austria or Portugal or Poland or wherever we were before. So that was a tough call also to, to stand our ground, to say, no, yes, it's going to be difficult for you, but please keep the color. We want to be unified in our diversity. That's the idea behind Pro-Life Europe. We want to be in every European country and acknowledge all the different cultures, all the different approaches, but we wanna stand under one banner. And that's especially in things like color or logos. It's very, very important that you stick to our corporate identity and that you agree to this color so that we can we can um, accomplish our goal. Well, in Holland, it looks like your identity is a royalist now. <laughs> yeah so one of the interesting things i found uh 
after just after the Austrian March for Life, and there was a gala afterwards, and I spent most of the time talking to all the pro-lifers from different countries. There was uh, Alexander Nadani from Romania. I spent some time talking to the to the German pro-lifers, and and it must have been annoying because I just pumped them all for tons of information because I'm so interested in what people are doing in different countries, but most specifically how people respond to the different histories in their different countries, right? So, you know, in Germany, the history about abortion is much more complicated and much different than it is in Romania and for very, very different reasons. So what has it been like attempting to, like, you can come up with a whole project, you can have, you know, apologetics and training, and then you go to a different country and realize that none of the arguments that work in Germany, you know, work in Romania, none of the arguments that work in Romania will work in the UK. Especially, what would be the difference between formerly Western countries and formerly communist countries be? Because that was also a very fascinating divergence that I found. I'm going to be totally honest. I think we were all a bit too enthusiastic. And then when we started, we underestimated those challenges, especially the huge gap between, if I may say so, Eastern and Western Europe. Um, we are a very young team, which is, of course, what we intended to be and what we want to be and what we think is necessary to, to reach the young. We need young people. But you could then see that we were lacking life experience in some, in some cases. And we underestimated those differences, especially Romania in the end turned out to be very, very difficult because with the history of communism there, only speaking about the pro-life issue had such a different meaning than when you were doing it on the streets of Austria or Germany or France or, or Portugal or Spain. We never estimated this. And so that needed a totally different approach. And we then had to say, with our current resources, we can only give that much and we have to we have to control our current work with our current resources to those countries where our current approach is working so which is why we are now um, working more intensely in central and western european countries um, because there are more similarities and when we are on a good basis in these countries, then we are going to focus on our more different approach for, for Eastern Europe. And until then, we have our volunteers there and we support them with all the materials they think useful. Again, the most important thing was for us to have volunteers there who know the culture, who could explain to us the difficulties they were facing. And we leave them the freedom to decide what to do and what not to do, what action to 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 do, or what what training to use, what talk to give, and what not. So, just to give uh, to give activists in other countries sort of an idea of what pro life Europe's work looks like outside of the the theoretical and into the practical, um, and skipping over these past months because right now. 
Uh, if you ask any pro-life organization what they're doing, the answer is very widely because so, for example, at the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, last year, our summer internship got moved into the fall, and we spent a lot of time creating plans and then scrapping them as the next lockdown came rolling out and things like that. So just setting aside all of the omnipresent COVID challenges for a moment, what does an average month look like for the team at, at Pro-Life Europe? So I'm going to focus on the active field work because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. everybody basically has fundraising and administration yeah, and yeah. communications team. Um, so the field team's goal is to get active at as many university campuses as possible. So a typical month would be um, going from campus to campus, either having already a contact there and organizing an evening with interested other students to present what is pro-life Europe or being at conferences, talks, evenings, whatever, to basically get first contacts to one campus. Then our regional director would start to work with this contact. And the goal is to have a group of three. With three people, we start a group. And the group is supposed to A, be active on the campus if possible, and B, be active on social media, because nowadays you can't work with young people without social media. So every group of us has their own logo, gets their own um, communications package, and starts their own sites on Instagram, TikTok, whatever they see fit. And they are active on the on the campus. And we are giving them ideas of what activities to do on campus. But we have two main topics. That's education and support. So every activity they do should either be to educate their peers or supporting um, young women. And one of my favorite examples, um, what a group can do on their campus to support one of our German groups before COVID, they just designed um, pamphlets themselves and handed them or put them everywhere on the campus that during the exam time, they were offering free babysitters. So if you were a young mother and you had an exam and nobody to, to look after your baby, they were supporting them by looking after the baby for the hour or two during the campus. And um, Education can be very diff different. They can do outreaches, something similar to what um, CCBR is doing. So the goal are one-on-one -on -one conversations with their peers, very straightforward, asking about their opinion about abortion. They can be discussing human rights and abortion, but they can also um, host um, evenings with movie showings or talk rounds with doctors, abortionists as well, or inviting somebody from a pregnancy resource center. They can, yeah, so like I said, we want to really give freedom to our groups to do whatever they seem necessary for their, for their campus. Because what we also realized um, there are huge differences in every European country regarding possibilities of studying with children as well. So I think Austria is rather well equipped and there are 
women and mothers coming to their lectures with their babies. And in, I don't know, Holland, maybe it's more difficult. Hungary is much more difficult. And so regarding of their campus and the the possibilities there, the group decides what what is most important for now. The one other thing uh, you mentioned is you have this this just uh, trip across Europe. I don't remember if the if last summer the trip went ahead despite COVID. Um, the long trek you guys do through several European countries. What's that like? Sort of share a couple of stories to give people an idea of what this is like because it is a hike through you know beautiful European countryside, but it's not just a beautiful hike. You guys are also doing activism all the way along. What what is that experience like? Yeah, that's the pro-life tour, which is technically not a Euro, uh, pro-life Europe activity, but also a project from Jugendfeder uh, Leben, so Youth for Life. But we support it, of course, and I've been there a few times. We did have the pro-life tour last year under uh, strict COVID restrictions. So last year there was much less outreach and no talks, and we could only hand out flyers and and put them in the post boxes and everything. But usually the pro-life tour is two or three weeks long. And like you said, we hike uh, through uh, different countries. And along the way, we are handing out flyers. We have um, large um, activities within major cities. So basically outreaches where we um, want to reach every single person on the street with with the topic of abortion and it's so a we reach a lot of people because yeah we reach everybody where we we pass by we also reach people with sending out the news that there is a youth group hiking 300 and more kilometers during the summer heat against abortion and also it is a good tool to get new people involved into the pro-life movement because it's an yeah one in a lifetime experience and it's it's three weeks of finding friends for life as well and when you see that sometimes young girls from the age of 13 14 with tons of blisters on their feet <laughs> really they continue because they feel like this is what they can do right now. Doing this and handing out more information and just being there is their participation in the movement. And when they know that they have done this, then they can also give a talk in school and they can in a few years start a group in their university because they have gone through worse and they want to do more for the movement. Now, I'm interested in, in, in what you think about the movement overall in Europe in terms of, of pro-life engagement and where Europe is at on this issue, because there's there's sort of two factors to look at. On one hand, you see more and more extreme secularization. You see people apologizing less for abortion, uh, openly justifying it for, for disabled children, even if they admit that it kills a human. It's like, well, it's justified in that circumstance. But on the other hand, I almost you almost see that they have that extremism on that side waking up more pro-life people because I, I've gotten to go to a few marches for life in Europe now. And 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 so, for example, in the Netherlands, I was there a few years ago and the march had gone from like three to four thousand people to 
15,000 people were at the March in the Hague when I was there. Um, when, when I was at the Austrian March for Life uh, with, with all of you, there was, there was just over 5,000 people there. And, and the march was only a couple of years old. Uh, in Paris, there was thousands. The French, the French are strange because in some ways they're the most secular country. And then you've got thousands of them rioting against against uh, uh, various ethical issues. So I can't quite figure them out, but their march is also is also very large. You've got the Swiss trying to hold marches in the face of violence. Uh, and, and they actually had violence break out at one of their marches and had this last year's march canceled over violence, but they still tried. Um, in Poland, interestingly, despite the, the sort of narrative right now that you know the youth are opposed uh, to the abortion law, if you look at the statistics between 1992 and 2016, you see that the, the, the public in Poland has actually become more pro-life by double digits uh, over the last 15 to 20 years, contrary to the popular uh, narrative. So there's on one hand this, this extreme secularization. You've got the Groningen policy in, in the Netherlands and, and euthanasia of children and, and people justifying abortion. On the other hand, that seems to be having the, the swing effect where people who are maybe dormant pro-lifers or quiet pro-lifers are, are getting engaged because they realize how big of a deal this is. In France, right, you have Marianne Maréchal openly talking about defunding Planned Parenthood, which is crazy for a French politician uh, and something her aunt never brought up. So what is your view of, of the debate as it's unfolding in Europe? Is that somewhat accurate or do you see it somewhat differently? Um, again, it depends on which country you're speaking about, but probably overall, no, I would agree. Um, what you mentioned in Poland that the um, youth against abortion are is growing, the numbers are growing. That's not just Poland, but I think in average you could say that for all over Europe. I remember mm. um, there was a study published, 2019, I think, European Values Study. And the the outcome was that this young generation, so until 25, is the most pro-life since the generation in the 1960s. So the numbers are growing, um, but I also agree that one problem is that the extremes are growing. So the, the society is getting more and more divided, which also you can see at the growing of violence at pro-life events. Mm -hmm. So Switzerland was one case with violence Berlin, March for Life Berlin is another where there is always, there are hundreds and hundreds of policemen to, to secure all participants at the March for Life. When I was the first time at the March for Life in Washington, D.C., I saw the police there and I was like, where am I? What is happening here? How is it possible? There are hundreds of thousands of people there and I don't know, 50 policemen. We had more policemen in Austria at our first march with 300 participants. We were at a one policeman, three participants rate, I think. And also last year at our March for Life in Vienna, which was smaller than when when you uh, visited us, but still for the for COVID times, we were very happy for uh, almost 3,000 participants. But I think we had... 600 policemen there we had police with dogs we had special forces from the police there we had a huge group of protesters and it it's really so potential for 
for um, violence is growing, especially maybe in the German-speaking countries. Mm. But the pro-lifers are growing as well. And again, like you said, I totally agree. The stronger the left-wing extremist side, the pro-choice side grows, the stronger the pro-life side grows. And I think, and this is a benefit for pro-life Europe, having those two extremes to extremist groups, let's say like this, grow, makes it harder for the mushy middle to not think about the topic. Mm. And that's our target group. So it's it's less and less of a, a possibility to meet students who have never heard of being pro-life or pro-choice, have never thought about the topic of abortion. Everybody has an opinion. They know it's an important topic. And this is where we can then start our work. The undecided middle is is huge, so there is lots lots of work for us to do. And the more the more active every country is, either in pro life activities or also with with Poland now the discussion of the change of law, the more activity there is, the better for the movement because we have to just talk about it. We have to continue being active, having conversations, and person by person. It took the pro-choice, pro-abortion movement 50 years to get to this point, so we can't expect to change back within a day or two. We are facing the same changes, but it is reversible. It just takes time and our effort. So why do you think the German-speaking countries um, have a particular um, difficulty with, with, with the backlash? Because it's interesting, in Germany, you've got um, just pro-family activists like Gabriel Kubi, who have these horrible plays written about them, where they're driving a stake through their hearts. And, and, and which, was it a pro-family or a pro-life leader? I think it was a pro-family leader who had their car um, burned on the curb a year and a half ago. What is it, what is it that makes things go violent there? I I honestly don't know. It's it's very difficult. I'm sometimes I'm not sure if everybody who is active at a protest for a pro-life organization or, or activity really is that much pro-choice and really is that open to violence against us, but I think there are always a few mm-hmm. who start the violence. And so from my perspective, one thing in Germany is that the current laws and the possibilities that the police has, they are very much against um, peaceful protesters and are very much helping the the loud loud and violent protesters. Because um, one time at a March for Life in Berlin, so they they were blocking the street and um, they were just sitting there and not moving, and the whole march had to stop. There were about 10,000 people there. And it took the police an hour and four warnings officially until they would have been able to remove them. And so that's, yeah, we, we were standing there more longer than an hour. Nobody knew what was going on. After half an hour, we somehow heard, yeah, there's a blockage ahead, but the police is not allowed to remove them. So we have to wait. Of course, they are not leaving. And that, for example, is different in Austria, 
because there we also had an attempted blockage, I think two years ago. And within five minutes, police surrounded them. They said, you have five minutes to go up, to stand up and leave, or we're going to carry you away here. And then they had to leave, of course. And so that's totally different from Germany. And I think, as we all know, Germany is somewhat of a yeah big brother for all of the rest of Europe. If the pro-choice movement and the violent movement is growing there, it spreads to other right. countries, let alone by people driving from Germany to Austria for a March for Life and something like this. So as a final question, um, maybe share uh, one of the one or two of the stories that have encouraged you the most since the founding of Pro-Life Europe, because I know doing pro-life work, it's like it's very, very hard work because you're constantly trying to figure out what the culture's saying, how you can speak to the culture properly, how you can best persuade people to become pro-life, how you can speak to people who are in deep pain, have made terrible decisions, but are suffering enormously because of them. So pro-life work is a lot more complicated than just being pro-life publicly. And a lot of people, I think, don't realize this, that when they look at the pro-life movement, the amount of work, the amount of research that goes into every public project uh, before every public outreach, the amount of thought you have to put into it. And so what are one or two of the stories that in your time heading up pro-life Europe have really encouraged you uh, to keep on going? That's difficult because um, there are much stories to tell. But I guess one very, it's not one person, but one one evening or one event we made. It was the first time we went for an outreach to university. That was the main university in Linz. It was really the first time for a pro-lifer to have an outreach at a university in Austria since we legalized abortion. And like I said, that was a new approach for us. And we knew that the people who were at Youth for Life Austria before us, they all told us, don't go there. It's a waste of time. All, all universities are super liberal. Every professor is pro-choice. Every university director is pro-choice. It's, it's a lost cause, basically. But we needed to, we needed to do this. We had to try this. But I remember being super nervous really i i felt sick because i i saw in my head i saw scenes of people screaming at me pouring their coffee in my in my face and whatever and it was such an awesome afternoon i had great talks i remember talking with one law student for over an hour um who i think had never before even asked what was the purpose of a law? And he was studying this. And so it took him an hour and we really had such a good, open, honest conversation. And also with all the other students I met there that in the end, I was laughing at myself for what I was expecting. And also with every colleague who then joined afterwards, I could only encourage them with what I had experienced because everybody started with the same fear of, I don't want to go to university. Even when I was studying, I was I would never have had the guts to speak up against abortion. And now I'm supposed to do this and that on a daily basis, basically, I can do this. This is going to be horrible. And everybody came back with the same experience as me. 
that yes, universities are very liberal and we have been banned from campuses. We have been yeah, denied a space to do an outreach. We have had many difficulties getting rooms for talks in the evening at the university. But when we were on the campus, you could see that as much as liberal or as liberal as the university itself was, students were not. They were open. They were open for honest talks and we could really make a difference there. And one other thing I think that is motivating myself is not only seeing people change their mind, but also seeing within my team how much people grow when they get active, really active in a pro-life movement. So we have a young girl working now as a regional director in Austria. She started just after her bachelor's degree. And within this last year, also now working in the toughest situation imaginable, she's growing so much. She's bringing so many ideas. She's bringing so many new people and just seeing how she grows and how much the whole team can grow by everything she brings to the team is a huge encouragement for me again as well. Well, uh, just a, a final question. Where can our listeners find your work and follow your work? So like I said before, social media is our main one of our main fields. So you can find us on all major uh, platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, just search for Pro-Life Europe and then also follow with all the other pro-life sites with the same logo because those are the sites of our um, different groups. There are over 30 now in nine or 10 countries. And Pro-Life Europe, the main page has a little more developed content and on the pages of all of our groups, you see um, our volunteers and our volunteers at work and you can see pictures of all the different activities they're doing. And of course, we have a homepage, prolifeeurope.org where you can also find uh, our contacts and ways to support us. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share all this with us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Manuela Steiner of Pro-Life Europe. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We do hope you'll head over to lifesitenews.com, go to the podcast tab where you can listen to past shows and subscribe to future shows. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts, and we do hope that you'll join us again next week.